Biohacking. What is biohacking and how can biohacking help you? What about the business of biohacking? What should biohacking companies know and do to market themselves and their products? All this and more with Elias Arjan. Let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome to Bernie Chats. My guest today is Elias Arjan. And Elias, I first met him about, oh, I don't know if you realize, Elias, we go back over 10 years. Really? We met at a marketing conference. Right. And I was blown away by uh, Elias's depth and marketing savvy. And he's been involved in biohacking the past few years. Elias is the recent senior vice president of Biostrap. He's the founder of Business Brain. And he's also a freelance contributor to the International Sports Sciences Association. I gather that's a publication. Yeah, it's a, it's actually a global certification agency. So they're the ones oh. who certify fitness trainers. So if you want to become a personal trainer or a nutritional consultant or whatever, uh, and get a professional certification, ISSA, the International Sports Science Association, is one of the larger entities uh, globally that does that. Oh, that's great. And I've seen you pro- producing some content around biohacking and different athletes as well. Yeah. So is there a connection there, I guess? Uh, it's just sort of generally I'm active in the whole space between, you know, uh, wellness, uh, fitness, general health, biohacking, and uh, wearables and sort of the quantification of all of these things. That's kind of been my focus over the last few years. From my background as a fitness trainer, we didn't have a lot yeah. of tools to quantify things. Like if, if you wanted to become a quantified athlete, you had to go to a lab. We're probably old enough. Remember the movies where the, the, the athletes were like running with like EEGs on their head and chest straps and on a treadmill sure. in a lab and all the scientists were monitoring them to see how they could optimize their performance. And now what I've been involved in is all that lab work is now can be done at home. That's great. So you can do it yourself and you don't have to rely on a team of professionals to get you to that level. I mean, you still kind of need some coaching. That's why I'm working with ISSA because there's a sure. lot of data. There's a lot to learn. I mean, if you don't have a background in exercise physiology, a lot of this can get really complex fast. Mm-hmm. But I've been of the belief that as we democratize access to this, these technologies, mm-hmm. we're going to also have to upskill either the general population and, and even the existing fitness coaches. The existing infrastructure of fitness, mm-hmm. health, and wellness needs to step up basically. And ideally, a lot of consumers can start to become, you know, what is called like a prosumer. So they also have to get some education. So I really have been a big advocate of going in that direction. How do we educate ourselves? How do we educate our professionals? And how do we upskill our knowledge so we can improve our health, optimize our performance, increase longevity? Um, There's so much that's happening in the space and and I'm fortunate enough to be embedded in it. But if you're not, a lot of people don't realize that there's so many things we know now about how to become healthier that just literally we didn't know and we didn't have access to these technologies, you know, even five years ago. It's moving very quickly. Maybe we could step back a little bit and just talk a little bit about what biohacking is and, you know, for people that are going to be listening that aren't familiar with that term. Biohacking is is kind of an open source term, um, so it doesn't necessarily have a refined description, but the typical description being used is that if you're a biohacker, you believe that there's a way that you can hack your environment externally or internally to optimize your performance, your health, and your life. Within that, there's a couple of suppositions that I should cover. Immediately, the fact that <clears throat> hacking is a computer science term, so people think biohacking is a very modern idea. 
but it's actually not. Our, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, hundreds of thousands of years ago, started biohacking. You could even go so far as saying cooking your food is a form of a biohack, right? It changes the way that you're ingesting your food in the reactions in the body, right? Uh, eating certain types of plants and minerals and, you know, they've made herbal salves, you know, and, and, and all these different things were ways of using our intelligence, our skills and our resources to change the environment externally or do something that changes our internal environment. It, nowadays, a lot of people think biohacking just means this like high tech kind of complicated stuff. And, and a lot of the really simple things are often the most effective. And I've been featured in a lot of magazines where they've tried to turn the story that biohacking is for the rich, so to speak, mm, or for mm-hmm. the ultra wealthy. Because I have to admit there are certain things in longevity medicine, you know, stem cell therapies and ozone therapy treatments and certain supplements that are so expensive that the general public won't be able to have access. But a big part of what I've been trying to do in my work in educating around this is talk about the things that everybody can access. And then if you find success from those, then maybe you'll be inspired to invest in the next stage. Mm -hmm. If I'm a runner and I'm Mm -hmm. pacing myself to have a certain heart rate, and trying to maintain, let's say, 155 or something like that, and not go over, because apparently there's a, an optimized level that's going to have the most fat burning, and going beyond right. that is not helping you, right? Remembering from my running days. Right. Uh, I'm a swimmer these days. But anyway, um, is that a form of biohacking? Yes. Uh, I would say to even take that a little bit further into the way it's often practiced now is a lot mm-hmm. of times people are doing now high-intensity interval training. If you just wanted to burn fat, You want to keep your heart rate at a steady zone to stay in a fat burning zone, because as soon as you increase that heart rate, you know, you're going to burn a lot of carbs, right? So uh, you're going to pull from glycogen storage. But if you do high intensity interval training, where you do a burst of max effort sprints, and then just to go back down to a trot and then max effort sprints, you can get the cardiovascular benefit of a one hour run in 15 minutes. That's an example of a biohack because a lot of biohacking, especially in our modern era, is often about shaving the time off of what we invest into our health. Like, how do we hack it to make it, you know, so instead of working out for two hours, I work out for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but I make it really effective and I get the same results. Mm -hmm. So to me, the word optimization comes to mind. Yes. And so it seems to me that if you're an athlete, if you're even if you're not, if you're uh, just somebody who exercises or even just anybody who wants to optimize your body's performance and the way that your health is uh, sustaining you, let's say, then you're trying to optimize these functions. And, and what I'm thinking is that that's kind of another word for biohacking. Absolutely. There, there are some people who just use the word now health optimization. I see. Okay, great. Is to be synonymous with biohacking. I sometimes though, the way I've seen it, um, and just been my experience being in this community for the last, you know, four or five years now, I tend to break biohackers into about four, four different categories. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the optimizer is a category. So there's mm-hmm. the people who are probably already healthy. A lot of times they're even already athletes, maybe high performing CEOs or executives, and, and they already have things pretty dialed in in their life, but they want to get that edge. They're trying mm-hmm. to optimize themselves to get that extra bit, you know, and that's why, you know, I think a lot of biohacking became very popular in Silicon Valley. And you hear about the, you know, Jack Dorsey of Twitter and some of these other biohackers that are in that category that are doing all of the the techniques that we found. But that's one category. I, I find that there's other people that come to biohacking. One of the other 
groups that people often don't even recognize exists is a lot of people come to biohacking because they were to some degree felt like they were failed by the health options that were provided. So it's mm -hmm. like, I got diagnosed with this condition. My doctor said there was nothing they could do, or maybe, maybe they went and the doctor said, there's actually nothing wrong with you at all. And that's really frustrating because this mm -hmm. person's feeling like I have a problem and I can feel that I have a problem. I know, I know where I was and I know where I am now and, and something happened mm -hmm. and nobody can help them. So then they start going on this sort of search of where do they kind of heal themselves and then they come into biohacking. So that's like another group, the seeking of healing, the, the sort of self-healing group. So you have the optimizers, you have the self-healing, then you have a rapidly growing group, which are the longevity. There's like a lot of movement now, if you just even follow the mainstream media or, or, or conversations online, there's a lot of people talking about anti-aging and longevity. And that's a form of hacking, right? It's like kind of like a life hacking, you know, like how do you mm -hmm. hack your body so that it doesn't break down? So there's things like, for example, mitochondrial health. When I was a fitness trainer, you know, nobody was saying, oh, well, here's how we optimize your mitochondrial health. Nobody understood how to do anything there. But now there's supplements, you know, uh, I'm sure you might've seen people doing like cryotherapy or cold, yes. cold plunges, you know, or, or cold showers. That when yeah, I go cold to the pool, there's cold showers actually set up there so people can use them. Yeah. And so that's, yeah. that's about mitochondrial health, right? Cause what happens is when you expose your cells, what, what burns calories or creates heat, it's the energy center of the cell. So when the mitochondria encounters a cold environment and the mitochondria itself was kind of at the end of its cycle or is a weak, uh, generator of energy and it encounters this cold environment, the, the mitochondria says, you know, what? I give up. I can't, I can't take this anymore. I quit. And it goes under, but another mitochondria that's younger and stronger takes its place. So you actually create a, something called mitophagy. So essentially you're burning out your weakest mitochondria. And, and that's a good thing because you're replacing it with fresher mitochondria. So you get the, all of this like cascade of endorphins and, and health benefits from mitophagy. So that's why those cold plungers are so effective. Uh, so I see. that is something that's used across the board. So, you know, if you have maybe, a, a, if you're one of the people in the health concerned group, you know, or health problem groups, maybe that's probably not the best hack for you to be using. But if you're in that optimizer group, right. Or in that longevity mm -hmm. group, then that's a great hack to be doing is cold plunging, cold showers, cold therapy. Mm -hmm. Great. So that's three of them. You've right. got the optimizer, the healer and the longevity. What is the right. fourth? Well, the fourth, the fourth is kind of where I think we're going to get into the, maybe some of the, the interesting part of this. I would say the fourth is kind of this new growing group. That's like a prosumer. So okay. maybe they're not quite, they're not quite there yet. They're just sort of dipping their toes in the world. Are you familiar with the innovation adoption curve? Often it's used for technology, but it can be any new trend of how okay the trend gets adopted over time. You familiar with that curve? If you want to explain it would be great. So you, you kind of have this group at the very beginning, which are kind of like the innovators. Early adopters. Yeah. Well, actually they're before the early adopters. Okay. Even before that, the innovators is a very small, narrow group. These mm -hmm. are the people who are like, uh, you know, they're writing the book. Yeah. They're writing the book or, you know, even in the society, the innovators are still a pretty big group. So it's kind of like the people who are, who are like, uh, I, I used this example recently. Uh, so I was using it again. It's like, I was into Nirvana, Nirvana, the band, you know, before anyone else knew about them. And then as soon as they hit the mainstream, they dropped the band because they're too cool for school. You know what I mean? They're, they're too mm -hmm. cool for everyone else. They got to always be on that 
cutting edge. They, they go from one innovation trend to the next, to the next, to the next, mm -hmm. and they just kind of move along that. I can so, relate. <laughs> <laughs> so they're a small group, right? They kind of just follow these innovation trends. Then the early adopters is when, after the innovators have started to kind of drift away, they're the, the people who are still uh, have not as risk adverse as the majority. So they have mm -hmm. some willingness to take risk. Mm -hmm. And and when I joined biohacking, or at least I've, I feel like I've always been a biohacker, but when I started identifying with this group myself, we were kind of at the end of the innovator phase. And so over the last, you know, four or five years, I've seen the early adopters come in and growing, you know, it's a growing movement now. And then in this particular concept, there's, there's something called the chasm when you have to go from early adopters to early majority. And the chasm is very hard to cross. That's why it's, they call it the chasm, because let's say if you're a company operating in the space and you want to grow, you know, we said we might be talking about the business side of the biohacking. Yeah, that's yes, a great segue into the business yeah. side. If you're a business and you're looking at the biohacking space, I've actually had some major market research agencies reach out to me to gather people in my community. And then they go and they write a report. I can't say for sure, but I believe the marketing agency that contacted me to bring in some biohackers and they wanted to do on-camera interviews with 10 people. Mm -hmm. to get to them, to explain like, what does it mean to be a biohacker? Why do you believe in this? What do you do? What do you think? What's your day like? They asked all these people a bunch of questions and I'm pretty sure they were reporting it that back to like a fortune 10 company, mm -hmm. like a gotcha. very big brand. Right. Uh, I can't say for sure who, but a very large brand is trying to understand this market because they picture. know at some point this trend is going to go across that chasm and start to reach the early majority. And that early majority is if it's a bell curve, right? And you're here, right? Mm -hmm. We're at this chasm. When it hits early majority is when the, it goes up and then you mm -hmm. get to that midpoint. And then that's when you have the, a very high adoption of this new trend. So we mm -hmm. haven't gotten there yet. We're, we're probably right, depending who you ask, I'm talking to people working in this, in other companies in the space. And, and I think we're either at the apex of the chasm, like we're just about to enter a new phase right. or just before. There's still a lot of growth that's going to happen in this industry. It sounds like part of that is awareness too. I think that the word biohacking, I think is going to become more familiar with people. And that's probably part of jumping the chasm. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think what's actually, be quite honest though, I think it might not make it with that term intact. Mm -hmm. I think part of what is happening as we start to move into this phase is the term biohacking is being dropped by a lot of companies. Mm -hmm. So a lot of companies that picked up on that early on, and we're using that term now they're, they're either retreating from it or some of the newer companies that are coming in are not using that. They're using things like mitochondrial health or longevity or anti-aging or personal right. optimization or personal performance or, you know, all of these other terms rather than use the word biohacking because biohacking sounds a little extreme because at the extreme edge of biohacking, and I didn't talk about this group, I could, I guess I could say this, the fifth group yeah. uh, in the biohacking community, which is, you know, probably the most extreme wing, if you will, uh, are the people who do at home labs where they do their own gene editing. They're putting, you know, trackers inside their own arms, right? I, I actually watched a BBC documentary last night in preparation. And they were interviewing a gentleman who you might have seen this one who was right. embedding a chip and there was a young lady too they had embedded yes. chips in their in their hand that yeah. allowed them to interact with their iphone and different devices like yeah. for instance uh, keyless entry into your car 
Yeah. Stuff like that. We got to include that group because that's kind mm -hmm. of where the term biohacking kind of became popularized in some mm -hmm. way. And then like in the minds of a lot of the public, that is what biohacking is still. Right. Especially so with documentaries when, like that, pushing yeah, that narrative, right? Yeah. So then when you talk about biohacking as a form of self-optimization or mm -hmm. optimum fitness performance, they go, well, that's not what I thought it was. So mm -hmm. like I said, the term, you know, is rather fluid. So can I bounce an idea off you? Sure. Marketing. And this gets to my, my passion for target marketing, I guess. Right. It sounds like people entering the market in the business side might sort of bypass the term biohacking and drill right down on longevity, optimization, and those other terms, and just latch onto one of those terms rather than biohacking. Yeah. I mean, it depends Something on how you kind of want to position yourself, right? Because right. if you want to appeal, see the thing about the biohacking community though, as well, is the people who identify with that term probably identify with it rather strongly. Like mm -hmm. I just came from a biohacking conference. I had a couple thousand people at it. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of companies there that would probably never consider themselves a biohacking company, but they got a lot of business from that audience. Right. So, you know, as a company, do you want to keep an aspect of your business appealing to this group? And like I said, that's why we're at this chasm. Like, is, is right. this thing going to grow? And, mm -hmm. and this community is kind of going to start capturing more of the social awareness, mm -hmm. or is the term going to have to get dropped is, is the industry mm -hmm goes off on its own. And, and that's, that's kind of the phase we're at. There's a lot of unknowns here. And I guess but, that leads to kind of the, the age old problem with trying to preach target marketing to people is they don't want to cut segments of the market off. Right. Right. They want to say, no, I don't want to just appeal to longevity people. I want to appeal to the optimizer and the, yes. you know, the other people as well. So depending on their, their scope and their product, they may drill down or they may not, right? Yeah, they may want it. They may want to just really target, you know, that optimizer persona and their ad would be like, are you a high performing executive? Would you like to improve your performance? 10%, exactly. 5%, you should be taking this ketone supplement before your next meeting. Yeah. And that individual on Facebook who sees that ad, that's going to really right. resonate, right? Because it's like, yeah. really, if there's something I can do that can like focus my awareness, that there's a lot of science that shows that that's going to optimize my cognitive function, focus my awareness, make me more alert, make me a better speaker, make me respond faster. So yeah, I'm going to buy that thing, even if it's, if it's expensive, because yeah. I also too, that group tends to have more capital available for these types of purchases. Right. And getting to that sort of avatar model, we were speaking and resonating right with your audience rather than trying to talk to everybody. And as they say in marketing, if you're trying to talk to everybody, you're talking to talk nobody. To nobody. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, yeah. and I strongly, I, I mean, I think you've attended some of my marketing talks, right? Like I've said that every, I say that every talk, right? Oh, because is that right? The, Good. Yeah. Because people always say that to me when I try to give them marketing advice, I go, who's your, who's your ideal client? And they go, yeah. oh, well, we serve everybody. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the wrong approach. Yes. You know, pe the people answer. who don't know that, uh, unfortunately, you know, and again, don't, don't want to insult anybody who's a business person, but that's just not the right approach for marketing. You have to know who you're speaking to. Your value proposition has to be in their language. Like that example I just gave, yeah. right? So you could even have the same product. And this is what has why, why mm -hmm. digital marketing has become so powerful because you could have the same product now, but you know, you're talking to that optimizer persona but then you're talking to somebody else, right? So now your next ad for someone on the longevity side for that same, we'll use the same example, like a ketone. Uh, so so these, these supplements that essentially activate your ketone, I put your body in ketosis because you're taking an external ketone supplement. 
So uh-huh. this is what I'm talking about, which is pretty powerful. Uh, the, the science and the research on this, I should just mention, I'm an evidence-based biohacker is mm-hmm. typically what I put my biography now because biohacking is being co-opted. I guess I could even add a sixth group of biohacking, the group I, I would prefer not to necessarily talk about, but the people who have sort of taken biohacking into, I hate to say this, but I'm such a scientist, you know, into these sort of too far down the path of pseudoscience. So it's just like way, like they're calling it biohacking, but it's extreme pseudoscience. There's literally no evidence that this supplement or this treatment or this protocol has any impact on the human nervous system or physiology, but they're selling that product very aggressively and some very successfully. So a couple of questions on that before I, before they slip my mind. Um, one, one of them is from a consumer side and from a business side. So from a consumer side, how can somebody look for that evidence? And from the business side, how can a business attach the evidence or seek evidence for their product and their results to attach to their product or their brand? It's a beautiful question. And one I've worked extremely hard to solve over the last couple of years. So to answer your first, so as a consumer, mm-hmm. a lot of times these, these companies will have a section on their website that says the science. So when you click right. that science page and you start reading through the data, I'm not saying everything needs to be a double blind, placebo controlled trial, you know, because those are extremely expensive and wellness companies can't afford them. Mm-hmm. for the most part, but there should be some validity or some validation of some kind, if not to the exact supplement, but maybe a lot of times what they do is they'll name the, the components of the supplement. So let's say it's a, I don't know, a magnesium supplement mm. and they'll point to studies. Here's the list, you know, on clinicaltrials.gov or some other third party agency right. of 200 studies that show the impact of mus- uh, magnesium on the body. Right. So, so they, they should be able to point at real science, not junk science. And, and unfortunately, the public doesn't necessarily know how to discern between those two. Uh, and then two, you probably also want to make sure that the product itself, like I said, in the case of a supplement, look at also where it's manufactured. You know, does it have, there's, for example, like FDA cleared labs, you know, in the United States that they've mm-hmm. been producing the supplement in a, a premium facility. And is there a stamp of that? Where is the product coming from? I mean, because reviews are still a big way to see things, right? Like what are people saying about the product, you know, and their experience sure. with it personally. And what I've been trying to do is drive that drive these wellness companies to actually do research and validate their products. That's actually what been my, my personal project for the last two years. So that, right, that yeah. that's, gets to the next point. So if you're a company, I mean, I, I literally built a whole division at Biostrap where we validated these products because now you have wearable technology and you can actually test the efficacy for yourself. So that's the other thing as a consumer, you could buy like a Biostrap or a wearable and you can get your own baseline of, you mm-hmm. know, so, so, you know, Bernie, you could have this, you could wear it, you could wear the biostrap for two weeks, get your own baseline of the normal life, how you behave, what is your sleep metrics, what is your HRV, your stress metrics and your health metrics through a wearable. Then you start taking your supplement. Mm. What changes? Do you see mm-hmm. any changes? Now, not every change can be measured through biometrics. There's other tools, right? So if sure. I was using this ketone supplement, I have a ketone breath meter. Mm. So uh, this is a clinical grade ketone uh, breath meter by Biosense. So I can now get up in my morning, 
I, I'm in, I do intermittent fasting. So I, 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 own, I don't know if you've heard of intermittent fasting. So sure. it, I, I live off in what's called an 18-6 window. So yeah. I'm fasted for 18 hours a day and I only have a six-hour eating window. So if I get up in the morning and I go for a workout, I, go, I work out fasted. So I could do my normal morning workout fasted, don't take a ketone supplement, just do my regular workout and then do my breath meter. What's my ketosis level? And I could take a ketone supplement or another supplement that's supposed to stimulate ketosis, do my workout as normal, and then take a breath measurement. I can test for myself. The technology so, uh, exists for us to do this now. In my mind, that's kind of when you really become a real biohacker, when you start doing the N equals one experimentation. So it sounds to me like it wouldn't be far out of the realm of possibility or that costly for a small company to say, okay, we're going to take a random sample, uh, six different kinds of people or six people in our target market, mm -hmm. and we're going to buy them bio straps or whatever kind of measuring tool, and then just run your own experiment. Right. Now that's why Is we that... built it. That's why we built a division called Biostrap Labs because okay. we actually were conducting that research. We have been conducting that research for other companies because <clears> the other thing too, and again, some companies have seen that do this, but put yourself in the mind of a consumer, right? When you go and you do that on do that research for yourself and say, our study showed mm -hmm. you know, that it results for this. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing that crosses your mind? Well, yeah, well, of course it showed you, you did the study, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. yeah, you're biased, you know, you did your own study. So, you know, having somebody else do it, a third party agency becomes really, that's why people believe consumer reports. So what I've been trying to do in some ways is almost build like a consumer reports right. for the biohacking industry. Okay, cool. So um, back to the, the business of biohacking a little bit, what is the spectrum of types of businesses and where do you feel the sweet spot is for businesses to enter? Yeah, uh, the spectrum is huge. Um, if you look okay. at the global wellness industry, it's a $4.2 trillion industry. That's just wellness. Wellness encompasses anything that is not fitness or medicine. Okay. So anything that people are doing for their health, that in, could include you know, yoga retreats, that mm -hmm. could include uh, a mindfulness app, mm -hmm. that could include a, a beauty cream. There was a, a McKinsey and Company report, if you're familiar with them, Yes, consulting uh, that group. They, yeah, the consulting group. They, they did a great assessment uh, that's very timely. They, they released it this year because they said that uh, because of COVID and the pandemic, that 79% of consumers have said that wellness has become a, a, a much bigger priority for them than it was previously. And almost half, 49%, I believe, said it was their number one priority now. I actually think the pandemic has created a there's going, we're going to see a surge of mm -hmm. fitness, wellness, and health products and services sure. explode over the next like three to five years. And absolutely. Is that explosion. because, is that because people want to be in a good shape so that they can sustain themselves through potential issues? Yes. I think, yeah. I think it has, I think, you know, cause if you look at the actual metrics of the pandemic, I think 54% of the people who had negative COVID outcomes had some comorbidities, right? Right. So it's basically, you know, if you are already dealing with a health condition, your chances of succumbing to mm -hmm. uh, any type of disease, uh, yeah. it goes up exponentially. And, and we are at a place, unfortunately, despite all of the efforts of the fitness and wellness industry over the past, you know, four decades, we have an unhealthier population today than we've ever had. Sure. 
I often joke with people and say, yeah, my swimming, I, I'm, I'm doing the pool now and in, in taking two breaths, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I often joke that I'm practicing in case I, the possibility of getting COVID. <laughs> right. Yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah, building yeah. my lung capacity up, right? Yes. So, yeah. so th that's one component of biohacking coming back to that earlier example of mm -hmm. the cold plunging is when you put your body under a certain amount of stress, you're, you're increasing what's called your anti-fragility, become anti-fragile, mm. right? And the ultimate example of anti-fragility is like the Navy SEALs. So you become harder to kill. You right. know, it's like this, these are guys that, you know, will jump in the ocean, swim without, you know, underwater, mm -hmm. jump out, you know, run for three hours straight to complete a mission, you know, right. and, and the whole time, if you took their heart rate, it's, they've kept it lower, even at a sprint than your average person, you know, at rest, like they, wow. they just, they've trained their body so well that, you know, th that their HRV and their heart rate and everything, their bodies are so optimized, you know, cause they train to just also keep cognitive awareness. So they don't get the amygdala hijack. They don't get, you know, the, mm -hmm. the stress doesn't take them over because, you know, when that happens, your decision-making capacity, you know, goes sure. down to zero. Like when you're in a state of fear, you can't make decisions. Mm -hmm. right? You're in your pure fight. That's why they call it fight or flight. Right. So, so, you know, this idea of how do we make ourselves more anti-fragile to me, that's actually in my own personal life, my personal way of viewing this, that has actually become my number one goal. And people don't realize that that should, people don't quite understand the nature of that goal yet, but I think people have picked it up during this pandemic that, I probably should be a little more optimized for my health, right? Because right. if I don't want to succumb to something and to some degree, you know, the reason that this has been um, such an unpleasant experience for the global health is because we have become, you know, I, I heard somebody say the other day on a podcast, actually, that uh, we have a kind of cultural type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. We've become, you know, very comfortable and, kind of fat on the land, you know, so to speak. That's what happened. Di type 2 diabetes comes from an excess of caloric consumption. Like there's just an excess of food and calories available to the body and you kind of burn out your ability to operate and your metabolic capacity, your metabolic flexibility, and you basically become metabolically dysfunctional. And, and again, the thing that's great about something like type 2 diabetes is it's actually kind of, it's reversible there's many clinical studies showing people reversing type two diabetes. I, I see it and I hear about it all the time, uh, but it's, it's, it's not easy. So we don't necessarily have to be, you know, sick and tired. We, we, we can just decide we're sick and tired of being sick and tired and do something about it. Sure. So people getting into the business, um, for our viewers, you're, you're in the United States, you're in Los Angeles, right? Yes. And I'm in Canada and Vancouver. So here I've talked to people who've developed different products and, even though their products, you'd never consider it a medical device, right. but they've had to get medical certification from the Canadian yes. government. Yes. So for people getting into the biohacking business, whatever product they have, if they're going to pursue the biohacking market, or if they're developing a product that's for wellness, what kind of certifications and limitations do they have that way? And where does, where does the need for medical certifications and not not having to get medical certifications where does that leave off that that's a very potent business question so i was yes it can uh, cost people a lot of money yeah if you make <laughs> if that mistake if you make yeah. if you make that mistake wrong um for, so there's two parts to that question um okay. if you want to get into the business and you want to be on the wellness side 
mm-hmm. which is a lot of people see it, it's it's a much easier market to get into. Obviously, if you get into a bit more of the medical and health side, you can potentially at the end be more profitable, but the upfront investment will have to be extremely high, right? So, so, so if you want to get to market faster, and a lot of companies kind of pursue both. A lot of times they'll pursue a wellness strategy, generate revenue, or maybe get developed in that market, and then maybe release a more higher quality medical version at a later date, you know, right. unless they're already in the medical space. By higher quality, you mean more technical and more well, sophisticated, I, let's say? Yeah, kind of. I mean, a lot of times it has more to do with claims. That's the right. big thing. It's about claims. So, mm. you know, you can say my supplement makes you generally healthier. Okay, right. fine. But if you say my supplement reverses type 2 diabetes, you're going to get in trouble very fast if you put that up on social media, right? right? So you cannot claim to treat or cure or manage any disease. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who try to tread this line. And mm-hmm. I think right now there's an ultra sensitivity to this. So if you're a company thinking about going down that line, I would not go there. I would, I mm-hmm. wouldn't, I wouldn't try to cross that line. It's extremely, it's not the right time. There's a lot of focus mm-hmm. on the types of claims people. I mean, there's a lot of companies that had been making immune claims for years and never got in trouble. But during the, the COVID pandemic, they said, Hey, you know, improve your immune function with our supplement. And boom, they, they were, they were mm. you know, cracking down on that hard. They were nailed um, it. So if somebody is in a company, and I think primarily you're talking to people that, about people that have a product or they're going into a product and they're capturing that general consumer market and they're looking at crossing into the specific um, claims about medical performance and benefits. Yes. Right. That's so when for, you're required to conduct research. So for those people, where can you direct them to, or how can they get the information they need to inform themselves about what steps they should take and what kind of costs and considerations there are in doing that? So, I mean, it, each country has its own regulatory system. Sure. So of course, Let's in the United US, States. it's FDA, yeah. in the US, it's Health Canada. Uh, and the bottom line is, if you're a company considering going down that path, under no circumstances should you do that without an expert. I'm not, right. I'm not an expert in regulatory. There are people who are extremely specialized mm-hmm. uh, in the regulatory pathways. And they, they tend to be people who have worked for these agencies, you know, and they really understand the mechanisms of how this operates. And like I said, it's, it's a capital uh, mm-hmm. investment. You know, you're going to have to hire somebody to guide you through the process. You're going to have to pay for a lot of research. You're going to have to spend, you know, potentially one to two years going down that path. But there's uh, just to give you an example of the business side of this, there are some companies that I've seen that have raised a seed round, let's say, of a high amount of money, let's say $10 million, which, you know, in VC funding is a pretty big seed, right? You haven't really built anything yet. You're just mm-hmm. saying like, we think we can do this thing. So they, they raise that 10 million to go down this path then they do this whole thing down the medical path. And the day that it gets FDA clearance, they get acquired and it uh-huh. makes money. Right. So, so they, they literally, they had this idea. They felt that the market didn't have a competitor. They made sure that they were the first to market with FDA clearance. And literally they've never sold anything yeah. the entire life of the company. The day it gets FDA clearance, they get purchased. <clears throat> For so that's price. a real expression of the the value of getting FDA clearance. Yeah. 
and even a potential milestone that that new companies should be striving to as either a step or a goal. Yeah, I mean, it's something to consider if you feel yeah. that you have the capacity, the bandwidth, and an offering that is a legitimate medical right. treatment, right? Otherwise, you're wasting your time. Yeah, otherwise, you're completely wasting <laughs> your time. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, this is why also too, you probably want to validate your offering with the general consumer because you can make wellness claims right. and you can make sure that you know you're getting impact. And and to be quite honest, the example I just gave doesn't always happen. That's a rare example. Mm -hmm. uh, typically companies will go down this path. I've seen a lot of companies that had a great product and it really worked and the science was strong and their marketing was really bad. Mm -hmm. It was all designed by scientists and engineers and they didn't know how to reach the market. And so they, they literally, the company goes nowhere. A, because a better mousetrap without marketing. Yeah. And I've seen other companies that are offering a similar product, but are all just marketers and they go to the moon. They basically become a unicorn you know, with a billion uh, dollar valuation doing the exact same thing. Interesting. It is very interesting because it's even though you're, you're in this health and wellness space and you do have to have efficacy, you do have to have science. Unfortunately, as I said before, there's a lot of pseudoscience companies out there that are probably making 10, $20 million a year in revenue. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean that all of the products on the market are efficacious. If it a business person was looking for somebody to help walk them through that process and they wanted to find a professional, what would you search online? I'm you know, assuming that's the first place to go. Um, I, I would probably look at health tech incubators or health, health incubators. You know, there's a lot of these sort of accelerators or incubators now that have popped up. And, and the thing that's great too, is even if you were in Canada or Singapore or Japan, right, right. you might be able to join an incubator in Silicon Valley. Incubators being a term for groups of people that are gathering in certain places or getting services for starting up businesses yeah. and taking them to the uh, funding level. Probably the biggest one in the U.S. that I have know of is Startup Health based out of Silicon Valley. There's another one here in Los Angeles called Scale Health uh, that started in LA, but now has expanded to multiple cities across the U.S. So there's Great. a lot of these kind of organizational structures designed to grow these businesses. Like right here in, in Los Angeles, there's a big push um, to become one of the health tech hubs of the planet. So there's a group here that I, I've started working with um, called Bioscience LA, but their job is to focus on the LA region. So if you want to move your business to LA and open up a branch here, you'll get access to all of these additional services and support to amplify your message and try to make you more successful. And do some of these organizations or incubators, do some of them operate virtually these days? Yes. Or? Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them, a lot of them, you know, the Founders Institute, I believe has a whole virtual program. Um, so there's a lot of these um, groups where you can get that sort of startup mentorship uh, mm -hmm. from anywhere in the world. A lot of times when you make it into these groups, right, you've crossed the threshold, you know, just by getting into this group, because they're going to analyze, oh, do you actually have a legitimate, you know, possibility here? Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that you're going to make it, but they're like, okay, well, you actually do have something. So then they often just getting into one of these groups often is the best step before you go for your seed round. They usually tend to get people pre-series A. So it's usually more on the seed stage or visionary stage. And some of them even help you find co-founders. Like some of these uh, ones that I've seen recently are even inviting people to come in without even a fully uh, realized idea. They're just looking for, you know, here's a really smart guy in health tech and here's a really smart uh, gal in health marketing. 
and they're going to be in the same project. And if there's a synergy there, then they end up building the company within the incubator itself. So there's all right. sorts of these models happening right now. So it sounds like a great lit litmus test too, to, to see if somebody else besides you and your family thinks this is a great idea. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Cause if you can't get, if you submit your idea to all of these different groups, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, cause a lot of people do that friends and family round, right. But what happens if you can't pay your friends and family back, right? Mm. That's not a good position. Very dangerous. To be in. Yeah, it's not a good position <laughs> to be in. So yeah, sure. you may think you have the best, you know, business idea uh, in the world, but you know, if the people who are the experts in the industry and you submit to incubator after incubator, group after group, and they all say no, might be, you know, I'm not saying give up, right? There's there's a lot of these. What was it like Henry Ford was you know, and Ed Edison tried, I don't know how many thousands of times, you know, before yeah. they got it. So that we hear these stories all the time. Um, and he figured out uh, several ways not to do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not saying give up, but I'm just saying, you know, it's a good sign that maybe you want to tweak what you're doing. If, if all of these groups just think you don't have something unique because mm -hmm. they see this all day, right? They see mm -hmm. health tech companies or health science, or, you know, these companies come again and again and again at them. And they, the ones that, that stand out, they put in this accelerator incubator or group, and then they start to help them build their business. So what if somebody has an established business? We could probably talk about this on two different levels. One of them is people that are inventing a business or inventing a product or developing a product. And the other one is people that are going to be marketing somebody else's product, say in their region or territory. Right. Uh, I know when, when I met with you in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, you brought me and my associate around to a number of biohacking businesses that were at, right. was it the Westwood Mall? Uh, that was one of them. Yeah, that was, I think we went to Next Health. Uh, That's right. We mall. went to yeah. about four different biohacking companies right. that had different products. And some of them were set up to be like franchise models almost where yes. somebody could say, okay, my territory is North Carolina, let's say and be the one that's setting up these clinics around North Carolina. So two different kind of levels. If somebody has the innovations and they're creating a model, a business model around biohacking, what steps should they be taking beyond incubators? Because their product's already developed to a certain degree. Right. I've become a firm believer in the last two years. Uh, I've seen a lot of kind of cross-pollination happening in this space, looking for more collaborative models and less competitive models. So like you mentioned the example of these facilities. So there are some of the people who say supply technology to these facilities who have started to kind of work together to acquire clients together. Mm. So, I mean, one of the things I would think is, is look at who is already in industry who's got traction, who you can align with, who's rapidly growing in the space. What's fascinating to me is when I, in the two years that's passed, since I took you on that tour, right. there was about three or four companies that are now franchising these types of biohacking models and they're, they're selling them across the, the US and popping up around the world. Like I, I've been talking to someone in Switzerland who's launching a, you know, under the auspicious is of a longevity clinic, almost like a biohacking model. And they're popping up all over the place. But these franchise companies that I spoke to, and I, these literally just are happening right now as of 2021. There's two companies I know that have sold over hundred franchises wow. in, in less than 12 months. Well, wow. so that's a business opportunity for people that are listening to this and they're looking for the opportunity in biohacking, then latching onto one of these brands that are franchising and selling territories or yeah 
I don't know if they're selling them or if they're just looking for the right people to be active in different regions. I but... think they're doing both. I think a lot of the franchises, when they know it's a prime market, sometimes, right. and again, I can't, I don't know the details right here, but sometimes sure. they look for an operator, right? And then sometimes they look for a franchise. And I'll even name the companies if people, if you want me to. If I yeah, do. I was going to ask you if you can name the companies we visited in Los Angeles. Sure. And just to give an idea of what kind of companies are around and what they're doing in this space because some of it was quite innovative. And by the way, it was great to, to have the opportunity to tour with you. And, and it was very generous of you to spend your time in oh, Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah sure. So uh, Next Health is one that when I showed you, they only had, they had two locations in LA. Since then, they've opened one in New York and one in Hawaii. So now they have four locations. It's privately owned. You can look them up. Uh, and what Next, do they do? They're more on the medical side. So they do everything. They do um, everything from IV therapy and sort of longevity NAD IVs to um, cryotherapy, red light therapy, but a lot of medical innovations. Co-founder is a physician. What is red so light therapy? It, Sounds a little risque. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's the uh, that's the uh, red light devices. Photobiomodulation, it's actually called. So okay. so photobiomodulation, your body actually reacts. People are using this for like uh, skin healing, uh, anti-aging for wrinkles. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, mitochondrial health, uh, there's a number of different reasons, but you they have these kind of thing like a tanning bed, but it's actually a different spectrum of light. It's not going to increase the melanin in your skin and make you darker. Mm -hmm. It's actually going to change your cellular health or optimize that in some way. Now that I think about it, I tried one in Victoria that a doctor there had set up. Yes. Yeah. Was so, side so, so there's some of these ones that are kind of like even the Medispa world mm -hmm. has started to pull in biohacking tech. So sure. you can go to a lot of these medispas and get that, you know, there's a lot of these functional medicine doctors uh, that have gotten into anti-aging, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even some naturopaths, for example, have got, have been practicing a lot of this with their IV therapy in different ways. Okay. So <clears throat> this screams to me business model, right? <laughs> somebody has, somebody has a, a, a medispa or some kind of a business, right? And they say, oh, I can add on to my business here. Yes. And get more revenue from the same yes. amount of clients. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Much like a chiropractor fixes your back, but all of a sudden he's selling right. orthotics. Some chiropractors are selling pillows. So it's added revenue streams onto existing models without having to look for new customers. Yes, absolutely. Right? So you could be a hairdresser. Right. And take one of your back offices that maybe is just used as a break room or something, or don't take things away from your staff. Don't take it wrong. But you know what I mean? Like a space that's maybe not used or active sure. or something like that. And then, yeah, you can put a red light therapy, anti-wrinkle treatment, and then you can right. now have people pay to get, oh, I want the anti-wrinkle treatment. I mean, a, a red light therapy, therapy is often used in hair growth or, or you can, you know, bring in something else. Uh, along those lines. That's actually what my consulting company does is help okay. people understand what is possible. We analyze what you're doing and then how could you start to implement what we're talking about into uh, your existing business model? Because people want to have access to this, but they don't know what to do. Right. They often don't know what products are good. If you look up red light therapy right now, you're going to see 10 dozen companies. And then you're going to see these really cheap red light devices on Alibaba that are like half the price or a quarter of the price. And you're going to be like, well, why don't I just buy those? Right. You know, should I buy those or should I buy these ones? Because these ones say they're better. And you see, so how do you know? You don't know. Right. So you kind of, this is why I have a consulting team of people who are experts on this, who have been in this space, you know, right. for years, if not decades. Sure. And, and you're and, playing with your own health and your own skin and your own 
yeah. know, well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and especially if you're providing a service to clientele, mm -hmm. you know, maybe if you're a home person and you just, you're buying it for your own use, I mean, yeah, buy the cheapest one on the market, but really if you run a commercial brand that you're going to seat all the people in the, the cheapest chair as possible when you're, you know, doing their hair, right. You're going to buy a professional chair that's going to be yeah. durable and that's going to provide the comfort to your clients that they mm -hmm. deserve. Yeah. You have potential liabilities as well and longevity of the product, do you want to be having to replace it? And if you have to replace it, is there a gap time where you're not able to service customers yes. and you're losing that revenue, right? So yeah. those are considerations too. I would say anybody who's listening to this, who's kind of thinking, oh, this sounds interesting, you know? Yeah, like, I can I, tack I just, that onto my business. Yeah, you can. Uh, coming back to something we, we dropped off on was the McKinsey and company. They, they talked about wellness across six dimensions. So maybe let's mm -hmm. just run through those really quick. Um, one is better health, which is not just, you know, medicine and supplements, uh, you know, it could even go all the way to medical devices. But again, as we talked about earlier, that has to be cleared through regulatory. But, you know, there's, there's telemedicine, there's remote health care, there's personal health trackers, there's all these different areas that can still be wellness, but it's more about improving general health, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, how do I really optimize my health? And, and that was kind of what we talked about, you know, people who want to make sure they're more anti-fragile, shall we say. The industry mm -hmm. that's, of course, been very strong in this space for a long time was fitness. So, you know, we all have had experiences, I'm sure, with the fitness industry, good and bad. Um, but again, with the, with the pandemic, people, you know, talk about the COVID-19 10, right? They put on their 10 or 20 pounds from quarantine, you know, the quarantine right. 10. So, you know, people are trying to return to new fitness levels. And we have all these different tools. And as I said, hacks that trainers can use if they know how to use them to shorten people's path to success. So mm -hmm. better health, better fitness, better nutrition. Uh, this can cover everything from nutraceuticals to diet, to diet plans, to, you know, um, you know, now we have all these companies that will ship the meals to your house, you know, and they arrive ready to go. And, and some of them are actually pretty healthy and pretty good. So, you know, there's a lot of people looking for, food options that are simplified, easy, uh, and, and uh, also cost effective. Beauty, the beauty industry has always been on the edge. Like sometimes people think of the beauty industry as not necessarily being wellness. A lot of people think of the beauty industry mm -hmm. being more, shall we say, vain. Um, but there is an aspect, if you really get into it, that if you are if you are healthy and you're improving your health, like I talked about, we talked about red light therapy mm -hmm. a minute ago, there's an anti-wrinkle spectrum of red light that you can use. Mm -hmm. Six, 660 nanometers of photobiomodulation has been proven scientifically to reduce the appearance of wrinkles and help with hair growth. Didn't work oh. for me, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I don't use it for that. I shave my head. So, but, but it does improve that. There, there's uh, another supplement to come back to nutraceuticals. There's a supplement, um, that uh, I, a company I work with as well, uh, something called Spermidine. And so they're called Longevity Labs and they have a product called Spermidine Life, which pretty much everybody who takes this finds that their hair gets much thicker, huh. right? So, uh, because, and I, I won't get into I thought, all you, that. I thought you were going to mention other benefits with a name like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's a weird name, Spermidine. It literally does have an origin in what it sounds like, but okay. it's not made from that. So, so just to be clear, it's made from wheat germ. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> uh, but it is called spermidine and, and it is probably going to be 
uh, after resveratrol. It is now probably going to replace resveratrol, if anyone's ever heard of that, is probably the number one anti-aging supplement in the world. It's, it's really growing momentum wow. fast. Um, so better health, better fitness, better nutrition, better appearance, right? Beauty, better sleep. For the longest time, we've lived in this culture where a badge of honor has been like, I don't sleep. You know, mm -hmm. I work, I only sleep five hours a day and I work 12 hours a day and then I work out and then I do this and I do that. And, you know, I never stop. And now we're finding the people who do that drop dead of a heart attack or, mm -hmm. you know, have all sorts of health problems at some point in their life. So you kind of can't cut out sleep. Uh, I'm sorry mm -hmm. to say, you know, if you think you can, especially if you're younger, <clears throat> maybe you can do that for a little while, but it will catch up to you. There's something mm -hmm. called sleep debt. There's sleep accounting. The body keeps score. And you mm -hmm. keep cutting down on sleep, you will suffer the consequences. So mm -hmm. we realize now we have to sleep better. So now you have all these mattresses and sleep trackers and melatonin supplements and all of these things people are doing to optimize their sleep, because it's probably the best thing that's ever been said around this is that sleep is the ultimate performance enhancing drug. Because every natural compound that the body creates to optimize your health happens during sleep. It's recovery. It's the recovery time. It's where yeah. all of that gets regenerated. And if you're not getting the right sleep, you're, I mean, there's even something called the glymphatic system in the brain and spinal cord. We only discovered this mm. uh, a few decades ago that the glymphatic system actually massages like the lymphatic system or the circulatory system. It massages the brain and spinal, uh, cerebral spinal fluid and actually cleans it at a certain oh, stage of sleep. Wow. And if you don't get to that stage of sleep, yeah. You actually don't, and, and it's very possible that that that's, uh, uh, predisposes people to all sorts of neurocognitive decline. Huh. So, so get your sleep, people. Don't, don't, don't just go chimps on it. Yeah. Yeah. How uh, do you know if you're getting enough sleep? Get a sleep tracker. <laughs> there's, there's a biohack. <laughs> get a sleep tracker. Get a so good one. So we used to say there's an app for that. Now it's a biohack yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. Get it. Get a sleep <laughs> tracker. Um, as okay. I said, I mean, I, I worked for Bastrap for a long time and it's a, incredibly good sleep tracker, bowstrap.com. Go get yourself one. Excellent. Uh, and then the last one. So better health, better fitness, better nutrition, better appearance, better sleep, and better mindfulness. This is kind of the funny one. Um, if you talk to people about meditation, you know, I remember I started studying yoga. Jeez, I'm going to age myself here, but probably 25 years ago, you know, I, I started studying, practicing yoga. And back then, there wasn't yoga class. There wasn't yoga studios in every corner. Back then I had to go to an ashram to study yoga. There was nobody that was teaching yoga on every street corner. Um, so, you know, I did a lot of pranayama and breath work and uh, went and studied Buddhist meditation uh, with Tibetan uh, Buddhists. So, you know, but now, as you said, there's an app for that. How many mindfulness apps are there? available right now. I mean, go look up mindfulness on your app store. And I don't even know how I don't, I couldn't even count the number of apps that are going to come up. So mindfulness has gone mainstream. Um, and that's another dimension. Uh, and, and potentially, I guess, since we're talking business, another aspect of the growing business opportunity here. The McKinsey report you mentioned, would you be able to provide me with a link to that? And I'll put it sure. in the show notes. Yes. You were mentioning the, the companies that we visited in Los Angeles. Yes. Yeah. We so you mentioned them. one of them and there was three others, I think. Yeah. So we went to see Dr. Hill, uh, my favorite neuroscientist at Peak Brain LA. 
He's trying to democratize neurofeedback. Um, Currently, neurofeedback is a treatment that you usually have to go see a clinical psychologist. Um, They do it in their office. Um, It's very expensive. Um, And and there's very limited access to these practitioners. I mean, they're very hard to find. They're only in maybe larger urban centers. And even to get one or find one that's good, it's a whole challenge. So Dr. Hill is trying to kind of democratize this, simplify it, lower the price. Uh, he currently has offices here in, I think, LA, Costa Mesa, St. Louis, and he's about to open one in New York. And I think he's opening some overseas. So he's really doing a great job there. And, and, I, and I encourage anyone to look up his work called Peak Brain. And I want to use these as kind of an example, uh, not as an endorsement or anything like that, right. for people to understand what kind mm-hmm. of opportunities are out there. Well, this is the fascinating thing. Again, what he's doing is because of the pandemic, he went to a virtual neurofeedback model, which has never been done before. You have to get to a, I think you have to get to one of his locations to get the initial EEG. Okay. But in terms of the, the neurofeedback protocol over time, right. uh, They actually, actually does something where he gives you the unit, trains you to set it up and then you actually do it at home, which again, turning the whole kind mm. of approach the neurofeedback on its head. And that's also how they're lowering prices. Cause otherwise you have to go see, go to the, the, the clinician and you have a PhD doctor sitting right. with you for an hour, you're paying for that every time. So right. he's trying to kind of simplify that. Not to so, mention the location and yeah. Yeah. So the peak brain Institute, uh, Dr. Andrew Hill, that was one. The other one we went to is a, is a very large franchise called OsteoStrong. Right. And that's where they have uh, uh, osteogenic loading for bone density development. Very, very mm. popular right now with elderly women, uh, but good for anyone. A lot of athletes are using this, but the osteogenic loading uh, essentially stimulates the osteoblasts and actually builds bone density. And if anyone's ever encountered you know, an elderly uh, parent, more predominantly an issue with women than men, but my grandfather, for example, passed away very common problem. He fell, broke his hip, and that was it, right? Like he couldn't recover from that because mm. the bone density goes down. So mm-hmm. this idea of what they do at OsteoStrong is try to increase the bone density so that as we age, we can maintain that bone density and be more anti-fragile. Right. Makes sense. And then the last one we went to, I think we went to Upgrade Labs. They're now producing the biohacking conference I was on uh, at uh, two weeks ago in Orlando. Um, because they couldn't actually host it in Los Angeles or California right now. so Because of the regulations? It, yeah, because the regulations to get that larger group together, yeah, it wasn't possible. I mean, a lot of big industry events within sort of the biohacking or health technology space have all been canceled, um, as well as other industries. But the biohacking conference was um, probably one of the only conferences of its kind that happened in, uh, this year. So those were the four that we went to, but there's, there's two other companies that are franchising that if you want me to name, I could name. That yeah, might, sure. Sure. Cause uh, if we're having a focus on the business of biohacking, then I think talking about this entry level, how people can get into the space, what the opportunities are, and then we can shift to how people are already in the space, how they can better run their businesses or better market their businesses. Sure. So the two other companies that are already getting a lot of traction is there's one uh, called restore. Okay. And that's another franchise model. They're opening franchises. If you, I follow them on LinkedIn and it seems like almost every day they're like, we're opening a new franchise in this city and in this city. And they're kind of just popping up all over the place. So restore, right. you know, we've often thought about fitness as being like you work out 
but then when you, after you work out, you need to recover. So mm-hmm. these are kind of like active recovery centers. Oh, that's where you get your cryotherapy, your compression therapy, your red light therapy, your IV treatments, um, and all of these sort of recovery techniques so that you can kind of go back into your optimizing your performance levels. So is that something that if somebody has a large gym, for instance, they could use that as an add-on to their business? Cause we were talking Absolutely. about adding on like-minded yeah. products. And I think one of the key things there is, you know, a business owner can ask themselves, okay, the people that are using my services, do they also have a problem that could be solved or a desire to use this other kind of product that happens to be in the biohacking space, right? Yeah. So that's probably a good question for businesses that are already established to ask themselves, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, you could be having a, you know, a lot of gyms now are putting in these sort of in these little, even these little recovery rooms. I'm starting to curate these for actually uh, place people may not think of, but the offices, large offices now want sure. to put recovery rooms. So I've been asked to curate recovery rooms for large companies. Uh, I'm starting to curate some of these recovery rooms for even conferences so that when uh-huh. everyone's at the conference and it's like, oh, you want to break from the conference or the, even just maybe just for the speakers and VIPs, you can have go into this room, you can do uh, like a mindfulness treatment where you get and then you get the compression therapy or, or maybe you do, you know, some, some red light therapy or all these different things that you can do to sort of just, you know, calm the nervous system back down, recover, re-energize and then go back out in the technology. Now that's becoming more ubiquitous, it, the price is coming down. And so you're seeing it proliferate. So restore is one that you may want to look into. And again, you know, people who wanted to sort of emulate these models, these, these are successful businesses. They're growing very right. fast so to your point. If you thought, well, how would I emulate that in my gym or in my facility? You can look at what these companies are doing. This other one uh, called covery is really interesting because they actually are doing both together. They're actually launching gyms with the recovery center attached. So they're saying work out here and recover here, and they're putting them even into the same space. So they're lining up their thing called the recovery with regimen. And uh, I just met them actually a couple of weeks ago at one of the conferences, and, and I, I really like their model. Um, they're they're also growing very fast. I'm really fortunate, I guess, in the sense that living and breathing this every day, I'm seeing exactly how this is growing very quickly. And maybe some people think, well, you know, that biohacking thing this guy is talking about is a bit obscure and abstract, and I don't think it's going to catch on. Um, just to let you know, on the business side, it's actually exploding. Like most mm-hmm. of these companies that I'm talking about cannot keep up with demand. So if you did want to look into something like this, and wanting to consider how to get into this as a as a adjunct uh, to your existing business, or as a if you're looking for a new business or a new place to invest, mm-hmm. uh, it, this is probably I think one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Great, and I guess using a lot of the the ideas that we talked about before to to verify if it's you know quantifiable results, if it's right. an investment worth its salt then I right. guess those are some of the tools you could use and some of the things to look for. Yeah, I, I do have to say, yeah, in, in some ways it is still a bit of the wild west. When we met, I was operating my company, Business Brain, more as a coaching and consulting firm in the general sense. And that's why I've transformed Business Brain now after all my experience into focusing on consulting in this exact space because I've been so embedded in it for the last four years and I have brought on some other consultants that are very embedded in that space because I guess, like I said, there was still a lot of pseudoscience out there. So just 
tread carefully um, if you don't have that experience. I guess we're just my little caveat. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go a little cynical here. So what, what about when somebody has a business and if they're delivering results, say to 90% of their people, but there are a few people coming in that are not feeling like they got the results they wanted. Do you have any tips for business owners, people in the biohacking space that are having to deal with that? I don't know if that even makes sense, that question. No, but... that's actually a brilliant question, Bernie. Okay. Something probably most people wouldn't think of asking. And I guess the thing that we also talk about biohacking is there's something called N equals one. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. I'm not sure if you caught it, but the N number of a study re- refers to the number of subjects in a study. So when you're validating a drug and the efficacy mm-hmm. of the drug, you got to put a very large N number. So let's say you got to study, let's put a really big number, for example, 5,000 people. And so it has to be efficacious for a certain percentage of those people. Now, a lot of people don't realize that even a new drug that has been approved might be efficacious for less than 60% of that N number. Mm. So that means that even though there were 5,000 people in the study and, and 2750 had a good outcome, then that means there's a lot of people that nothing happened for. And, mm-hmm. and potentially could even some of them times even have negative outcomes. Mm-hmm. So people have to understand nothing works for everybody, nothing. Mm-hmm. So if you're encountering that, you're not doing anything wrong. In fact, if your number was 90%, if 90% of your clients were having positive outcomes, you're a rock star. If 80%, 70% are having good outcomes, you're a rock mm-hmm. star. I, I would say that just understand you're never going to please everybody and you're always going to have... I would say the realistic number is 30 to 40% of the people who try these therapies will find ones that don't work for them. Okay. So how do you, how do you manage that as a business owner to minimize the potential effect on your business, let's say, of having people that might not feel like they got the full value? Is there, uh, I'm assuming, uh, some kind of disclaimer at the beginning and then some kind of a follow-up method or what? kind of advice would you have for people that just want to have a good process in to make sure that they're educating their clients and setting realistic expectations while still marketing and being able to sell their their service and product? Yeah, I, I really like your thinking here, Bernie. You're really covering a yeah. lot in a, in a detailed way. And I appreciate that. I think that's Thank great. You. I think you should just be honest and transparent and be mm-hmm. like, red light therapy has been shown in many studies to regrow hair but it doesn't work for everybody, but why don't you try it? But here's the problem. Most people, when it comes to fitness and health, give up before they turn the corner, right? right? I mean, we've all seen that. Like when I was a personal trainer, all these people would come and they would work out for a certain period of time. And then they would be like, well, I don't have a six pack abs and I've been coming for six weeks, so I'm gonna quit. I'm like, well, yeah, but nobody mm-hmm. gets six pack abs in six weeks if they're, you know, came in overweight, like it doesn't happen. You got to be realistic in your expectations. It's like fad diets and you really need to turn it into a lifestyle, right? Yeah. What you probably should do is become a bit of a uh, coach yourself, understand your technology. So if using red light therapy and you're in a beauty spa and you've added it to your treatments, go do some research and be sure, okay, well, for people to have an effective outcome, they probably need to do this twice a week for X amount of time, for X mm-hmm. amount of weeks. And, and you know, that's going to be your protocol, right? And if after that protocol, they don't feel, as you say that, or they don't see the results, you know, you, you, if you told them at the beginning, this is commonly 
where people get the best result. Let's try that. So you kind of going to have, and this is, this is why we're still in the early adopter phase because mm -hmm. most business owners don't want to go through all that. They just mm -hmm. want to know what's the protocol, what's easy. How do I rinse and repeat? I don't want to do all that work. And that's why we are not in the early majority of what I'm talking about here today with you. I see. You got to become a bit of a coach yourself. You got to become educated yourself. You're going to have to do some, some investigation and do some legwork because everything isn't designed. It's not the whole industry isn't plug and play quite yet. Yep. And I think every industry has to deal with that, you know, yeah. in the web design or even the video production business that I'm, you know, heavily involved in both. Um, you know, people have expectations and they think, oh, I'm going to turn on the switch on the website. I'm going to go live and then uh, I'm going to have to get more servers because there's going to be so much traffic, right? Right. And that's just not the way it works, right? Yeah. Right. What you put into it is what you get out. It's proportionate. Yeah. And again, you know, think about the very early, it's become very easy to get good quality microphones for home sure. use. But at some point, you know, these were completely expensive and unobtainable, mm -hmm. right? But now the prices come down. It's a mature market. It's very ubiquitous to get these products. The manufacturing and supply chains are huge. So you can get access to these really easily at a low cost and everybody kind of can figure out how to use them. They've made the technologies more plug and play, you know, so all of that will eventually come into this industry, but we're not there yet. Well, and, and of course, usually there's a specific time on the early side that if you get in, that's where the maximum profitability is going to be before yes. the market's saturated but then not getting in too early so that you have to do all the legwork to create the market locally as well. Maybe there's something there to talk about as well is what is the sweet spot of getting into the market? I would say right now, I would say this is why we're, <laughs> okay. at, we're at the beginning of the chasm, as I said. Mm -hmm. So that means that we haven't, so on the other side of the chasm is the tipping point. Mm -hmm. So if we're at the beginning of the chasm and the tipping point is on the other side, again, you can't, predict with perfect accuracy when these things are going to happen. But my estimation based upon, like I said, being embedded this in this now for a couple of years is we're probably within about 12 to 18 months of hitting some type of a tipping point. Things are just going to start just growing on a more exponential cycle. If you were going into business, into the biohacking business with one of these franchises or an innovation of your own, how much of a runway would you give yourself? Would you say, oh, it's probably going to take me three months to get up and running or three years or how much of a runway would you try and have the capital to finance? I, I kind of think that's impossible to answer directly. Sure. But to back to my earlier statement, if we're about 12 to 18 months from a form of, of, a, of the beginning of a tipping point, then that means if you get in now, you should be using this time to get your market validation dialed in to find your product market fit who's your ideal consumer, get your market testing figured out, uh, get your branding figured out, get your brand position established. Because when we, if you have all that done mm -hmm. in the next 18 months and we do hit the tipping point and I'm right, you're golden. Yeah. Two things come to mind with that. And that, and that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that. Um, one of the, one of them is uh, that you didn't include, but I'll throw in <laughs> is getting your processes down yeah. in your organization which would also include staffing. Yes. So making sure you have the people trained and so that when all of a sudden, when that business starts getting momentum and people are coming in and the phone's ringing and how do you handle it? So having your processes and your staffing dialed in by then, you know, that runway kind of idea. Yeah. 
And, yeah. and of course, your um, supply chains, because right now we're in a, a state of very severe disruption in global supply chains. Very. So it doesn't matter what you're trying to produce. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people I know have gone back to domestic production uh, mm -hmm. because supply chains, global supply chains are so disrupted. So that's increasing costs, right? So mm -hmm. then how are you going to structure your margins if you now suddenly have to produce domestically, shipping prices are going up, you know, how are you going to get all of that figured out and get your margins and then the price that the customers are willing to pay? Like there, there's a lot to figure out right now. There is. Yeah. Right now, um, you know, and probably when people listen to this, who hopefully it'll be behind us, but, but, um, but there's a lot of issues with supply chain, like you're saying containers, there's issues in China with production. Um, you know, I'm hearing shutdowns in Vietnam. So there's, there's all kinds of supply chain issues going on. Well, um, if you, most of what you read, they say it's not going to be over to the beginning of 2023. So I think it's going to yeah. be, you know, they're, they're saying at least, I mean, I guess they're talking more about the chip shortage on that one, but people are saying generally it might take even a full year from where we are right now, at least mm -hmm. for a lot of these disruptions to sort of level off. And like I said, I think a lot of companies are now looking at ramping back up domestic production and that's mm -hmm. going to take them a year or two. So you know, I think this will kind of level out potentially. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, back to that earlier point, now's the time to get that figured out. Because if this thing does hit the tipping point 18 months from now, and then you start, right. how much are you missing? Of You're that? behind the eight ball. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we shift a little bit to marketing now? Okay. I'm thinking on a couple of different levels. One of them is who are the target consumers for this product, right? I mean, we've got the four different markets and I'll go through them again, the optimization, the health, the longevity and the prosumer. Those are the four markets that we've been talking about. Yeah, the health concerned, I guess, just to add the, the quantifier to that. Sure. The people who are like seeking to get healthy or they're concerned about their health because they actually had a condition or are trying to stave off a condition. Right. And they haven't maybe got the results that they've looked for in the traditional health and medical field from a target market and a ideal client perspective. I'm wondering, if, as we're talking about this, if there's a bent for sort of luxury and status and just self-pampering, if that's kind of a, an aspect of it. Yeah, I, I would definitely say, I mean, I think that all of those four groups though have slightly different motivations, right? So right. I would say maybe the optimizer is probably a little bit more around that thought, but the longevity mm -hmm. obviously probably skews older, right? So that you right. could have a 20 year old optimizer, but you probably don't have a 20 year old person concerned about anti-aging, right? Right. It, there's certain demographics uh, and even psychographics that probably go with each of those categories that, you know, I could probably break down in detail and go, go into that, but that's maybe part of what I do for as a consultant. So maybe right. I'll, I'll leave some of that off the table, but basically <laughs> it's a, it's a very astute question. And there's, there's a lot of nuance there, I guess, is part right. is the thing. And, and, and you're absolutely correct though, that there are certain levers that each market is going to be more responsive to. Mm-hmm. Understanding that there's there's different kinds of people are going to go to seek out this kind of service for different reasons. Do you have any thoughts on the best way to get exposure to those markets? There's an interesting thing that's happening within that is a lot of these companies are actually still not even selling direct to consumers. They're selling to practitioners mm -hmm. and letting the practitioners sell to the consumer. Right. Because right now the consumer isn't educated enough to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working with and have worked with a lot of companies that um, have made that choice. So they maybe sell to consumers on their website, 
mm-hmm. but they focus their business model around the practitioner portal and a practitioner distribution system or potentially an affiliate based distribution system where you partner with influencers who are educating the audience. And then that's how you're reaching the end consumer. Right. So identifying those channels, and one of the channels could be uh, the professional referral source. The other channel could be the influencer referral source. In addition to your digital or traditional advertising that you're doing. You're not getting consumers in biohacking right now. You're getting prosumers. Right. There isn't enough market education. So we haven't reached the early majority. So you have your prosumer, your influencer, educator, and your practitioner is kind of the the three main distribution channels. So if you're coming in thinking, oh, I'm going to sell to everybody across the country, you're right now, you're not going to get that. You're going to get your prosumers right right now if you try to sell direct to market. So you got to have a really good strategy there. So you have to ask yourself, okay, my target customer, what are they thinking? Who are they talking to that would influence them and refer my service? Yes. And then make sure that you're connecting with that person. Yes. Whether it's a professional or an influencer and making sure they're aware of your product and they know how to refer your product yes. and service. Absolutely. That's that right now from where we are in the cycle mm-hmm. of this industry is, is a key piece. And that's probably the most valuable thing that we just said in this, in terms of like a pure business understanding, because mm-hmm. so many companies I see are going out there thinking they're just going to sell direct to consumers and then wondering why they're not getting the traction. And they're going through that recognition. And, and I have as well. The recognition right. that, oh, that's not going to work yet. Right. Right. You want to have a one-on-one conversation at some level with yeah. that target. Because we're still in the stage, the early adopters are, mm-hmm. I said, they're less risk adverse, but the conservative, mm-hmm. more risk adverse population will look at that offering and go, that's not for me. And you're not going to get them right now. Like, right. Like, like, don't think you're suddenly going to be the one that converts them all at once. We haven't reached the tipping point. So you're not going to get them all at once. You're going to have to have some through line strategy. Right. And I guess from there, understanding your business. So you know how many of these prosumers or other target market clients that you need to sustain and make your business profitable. So if you understand that, then you can reverse engineer it as a business person and go after the market. Yeah. And the good news though, is that especially if you're operating at a local level with like something like a facility coming back to the idea of like you're in a beauty spa and then you add this in you probably will capture a lot of the market and you're going to be novel there's going to be a a sense of like oh that's new i haven't seen that that sounds really cool i'll try it so there's a novelty aspect that you can really take advantage now so it's kind of like a double-edged blade right so there's people who love novelty who like i said are a bit more less risk adverse and then you have the conservative minded people who are like, I don't know what that is. I'm not going to go near it. So you're kind of going to get both of those responses. So you just need to be prepared for that psychologically. Well, and I think of it, there's two things, three things that come to mind actually. But one of, one of them is um, if you already have an established business, it's that much easier for you to do because you have a built-in uh, focus group that you could talk to your clients and ask them if they'd be interested in that service. That has to be done a certain way though. You have to obviously emphasize the benefits and the the prestige or whatever it is of doing it. Just to add to that, that's why the practitioner model is so effective is because right, right now, because it's a novel, it's based on trust. So right. I really like my hairdresser. Right. So my hairdresser tells me this is a really good hair supplement. And I already trust and like them. I've been coming to them for two years and they say, 
hey, spermidine has really improved hair growth for all of my clients. Right. I'm going to buy it, right? Because I, I have a trusted relationship. And if we come back to my sales training that I usually do, I say we buy from trusted advisors. We don't buy we from do. salespeople. People we know, like, and trust. Yeah. We buy yeah. from trusted advisors. So if you're already a trusted advisor and now you're adding this, these new things in and you do your due diligence to make sure that it's an efficacious recommendation. So you don't risk your personal brand because if you're now that hairdresser and you give them a product and they spend $200 on it and then they come back and say, this thing sucked, you've lost some of that re customer mm -hmm. relationship. So just do your homework. But right. again, you have a built-in opportunity here if you're in that category that you, you can Makes take sense. advantage of. You know, what, you know what industry it really reminds me of, uh, Elias? is the dental industry hmm. when they brought in, I'm going to date myself here now too, but when they, when they, when they brought in uh, teeth whitening, right. Right. So all of a sudden my my dentist was selling me teeth whitening and I thought, Hmm, it's kind of cosmetic, but, and you're a dentist. So, right. but now it's so normal. You don't think about it, but at right. first it was a bit of a, like, why are you doing this? You desperate. <laughs> and look, and look how big that industry became. Though. Oh, it's it huge, became huge. So ubiquitous. Like every, every brand now, like every store, you know, you go to Target or Walmart yeah. and there's like teeth whitening, toothpaste and sprays and treatments and everything. But at some point you're right. At some point it would only be able to be purchased and done by a professional. You had to go to your dentist to get it done. Think about that for a minute. It's a well, that's perfect true. analogy. That's at true. the very origins of teeth whitening, it had to be done in the dentist. Then it went to Medispas. Then it went to, uh, you know, larger spas or treatment centers, and then it went to the mass market. That's a perfect metaphor mm -hmm. for the genesis of how this is going to go. Great. Good. So Elias, you were talking to me about your position with Biostrap. I'm absolute fan of wearable technology, and I had the privilege of being the senior vice president for Biostrap for uh, two and a half years. Uh, well, actually, I consulted them with them for six months, so two years in total. But before that, I was running my consulting firm, Business Brain. I recently, I made the decision to return back to consulting, specifically focusing on exactly what we're talking about here today. How do we help companies who want to enter the space mm -hmm. and understand the market, understand how to connect to consumers or prosumers or practitioners or affiliates uh, is what my consulting firm does now, specifically for health wellness and uh, fitness companies. I'm doing things like building affiliate programs. There's some brands that want to kind of reach that consumer, but as I said, they recognize they have to go through the affiliate strategy. So I'm working with them on building that affiliate strategy um, for events. You know, we're doing some event production because as I said, it's really about market education. So mm -hmm. how do we educate the market? You know, we have to use the resources we have. And so producing events where they're educational, or where we have access to practitioners. Uh, some of these practitioner events that I've been at recently that are attended by either health professionals or physicians who they're very hungry to get access to this because they do want to get better outcomes for their patients. And so if there are technologies or services that are not strictly medical, but are getting positive outcomes for their patients, they want to use them. And so there's a whole new field of functional medicine, cellular medicine, longevity medicine that is overlapping the whole biohacking industry that we talked about today. So, so there's, there's a lot of layers to this and there's a lot of complexity and, um, but there's also a lot of opportunity. And so that's what business brain is here to kind of help companies understand. How do you take advantage of that? 
That's awesome. Yeah, you're in an exciting place at an exciting time. Yeah, so that's that's incredible. Um, so how can people reach you? I'm assuming there's a there's a website. Yeah, I'm currently, uh, I don't know when this is going to come up. I'm currently redoing the website because Business mm -hmm. Brain still reflects uh, a bit of my old sort of branding. And I brought on some new consultants to work with me on this project. But uh, businessbrainllc.com is okay. the uh, main website. If you want to know about me, and once this podcast goes up, Bernie, I'll put it on my podcast page on eliasairjan.com. Uh, so I have a list of uh, some of the work that I've done, uh, some of the philanthropy work I do. I, I like to help charities raise money. I volunteer my services as a speaker and MC and auctioneer to help charities nice. raise money. Um, so if you're a, a charity or nonprofit that is looking for some help, I, I, I like to do that as my sort of philanthropy work. I, I did get paid That's at great. one point to be a professional auctioneer, but now I just do it for my kind of my uh, give back to the world. Yeah, you're no um, stranger to the stage, are you? No, I've been, yeah, I, my, my, I, I've been on, you know, we didn't really get into much of my biography, but yeah, I've been on film and TV. I've been on stages all over the planet. Um, so I, I have a background as an actor and a performer. And so, uh, and I said, an auctioneer doing benefit auctions, art auctions, charity auctions. Um, so some of that is on my website that you can find. And how and, do you spell your name, uh, which is your URL? Sure. E-L-I-A-S-A-R-J-A-N.com. Also to LinkedIn is my main social media platform. Um, right. So if you look for me on LinkedIn, that's probably the best place to find me. And uh, I hope to take a snippet of this and put on LinkedIn, Bernie, because that's where I like to share what I'm working on right now. And I think this conversation be of great interest to some people on that platform. Hope Good, to, I hope it uh, is. You even help me learn a little bit about how to drill down into some of these things today and the types of questions. Because you know, when you're embedded in something, you know, it, it sometimes you get myopic about it, right? Because you're so close to it. You sometimes don't see it out at a distance. Sure. And so I thought your questions today really helped me get some perspective on how other people might feel looking in. And so I appreciate that. I think it was a great conversation. So yeah. Elias, I see what happens when you get two great marketing minds together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Elias, thanks so much for joining me. And like I said, you're in an exciting place at an exciting time. So I wish you the best with Business Brain and your future endeavors in the world of biohacking. All right. Thank you so much, Bernie. It was a real pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, share what's going on in this new frontier. Thanks, Elias. Over and out thank for now. Thank you. And that concludes this Bernie Chats. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, like, share, and feel free to comment. Thank you for supporting the channel. I look forward to seeing you on the next Bernie Chats.